Well, if you have ever sought to explain the gospel to uh, someone who is far from Christ, uh, you know that that can be tricky and difficult even when the Lord has opened a door for the gospel. Uh, as a couple examples, what, what do you do when you've been unjustly treated by the person you're seeking to evangelize? They've mistreated you. What do you do in that situation? Or what do you do when you sin against someone after they've attacked you? And so you feel vindicated even in your response, and yet you have done wrong to the person you're seeking to witness to. How do you prioritize which issues you ought to talk about when someone has so many objections to the Christian faith? Or how do you persevere through opposition, rejection, and hostility towards the gospel? Uh, No doubt the complex situations that we find ourselves in require wisdom as we speak the gospel clearly and boldly as we ought. And it's for this reason that Paul would exhort the church at Colossae in Colossians 4.2 to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. But what does this kind of Christ-honoring wisdom look like? Well, this morning, as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, uh, we get a little picture. Uh, For the last several weeks, we've been following Paul as he has returned to Jerusalem after several years of ministry among the Gentiles. He's been falsely accused. He's been beaten almost to death. He's been arrested and soundly rejected by the crowds uh, as they spoke of his mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this week, as we continue to follow Paul's journey in Jerusalem, we get to see what Paul does as he's tried by the Sanhedrin, which is the highest ruling council of Jews in Jerusalem at this time. So this week, as we peer in on Paul's experience in Acts chapter 22, verse 23, through chapter 23, verse 11, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us how to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. This text is tailored to teach us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, just as Paul commanded us in Colossians 4.2. And in particular, we see four aspects of what it looks like to walk in wisdom. We see that wisdom exercises her rights at the right time. Wisdom repents wherever she's able. Wisdom focuses on the hope of the resurrection. And wisdom takes heart in God's promises. But before we dive into God's word, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world of confusion and chaos and situations that are difficult, that your word shines forth with wisdom. And that that wisdom is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to understand what you've said. And that you would give us hearts that would be willing to receive what you've said and to apply it in faith to our lives. But most importantly, Lord, we ask that our time together would be used by you to exalt Jesus, to demonstrate how good he is, to demonstrate the love he has for us, so that we would respond to him in love in return. So Lord, help me to preach your word today clearly, faithfully, and passionately, so that Jesus would be exalted, and we would be able to leave this place eager to pursue his mission with wisdom out of the very great love in which he has loved us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 22, verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of our community Bibles under your seat or the seat next to you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll find uh, our passage on page 932 of our community Bibles. Uh, You'll be looking for a big, bold 22. That's a chapter followed by a small number 23. Uh, That's a verse Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted for you to continue to engage God's Word throughout the week. A great place to start if you don't know where would be the Gospel of Mark. Well, you'll learn all about who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, But once you've found our passage for today, uh, you know what wisdom you need as you engage those who don't know Jesus or the various complexities of life you may face. Uh, So right now, ask that God would speak to you the Word that he's prepared for you and that you'd be ready to receive it. Well, 
Well, if you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. So look with me at chapter 22, verse 23. Luke continues his story and says, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and were flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came to him and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. And the tribune answered, Well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Here we see that wisdom exercises her rights at the right time. Wisdom exercises her rights at the right time. So we pick up where we left off last week. The crowd is shouting, away with him. They want him to die because he has said that Jesus called him to take the gospel to those despised people, the Gentiles. And as they're shouting, the text tells us that they were throwing off their clocks and uh, their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And we don't know exactly what this means, but it's likely that in the same way the people had laid their cloaks at the feet of Paul when they murdered the first Christian martyr, Stephen, that this is likely what they're preparing to do, to murder, put to death Paul for what he has said. And so once again, the Roman soldiers have to protect Paul, and they rush in to grab him and take him away to the barracks, where he'll be safe from the crowd, and where the Roman tribunal will finally be able to get to the bottom of, why are these people all upset? He still hasn't been able to do it. He didn't discern it the first time they rescued him. He didn't discern it through the speech. And he still doesn't know, why do these people hate Paul so much? And so he decides that, of course, if this crowd is so angry at him, he must have done something worthy of flogging. We're going to get out the information by flogging him. And one commentator, John Polhill, notes the violent nature of this particular form of torture. This was a particularly cruel manner of scourging and consisted of beating across the raw flesh with leather thongs in which there were inserted rough pieces of bone or metal. The thongs were set in a stout wooden handle, and it was not uncommon for the victim to die as a result of flogging. But just as they were about to do this, Paul had been stretched out before those who were going to flog him. Paul then exercises his rights, asking, is it lawful for you to do this, though I'm a Roman citizen and uncondemned? We get a sense for how serious it would have been for them to do something like this based upon the words of Cicero, the Roman statesman and lawyer of the first century. He writes this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him, an abomination, and to slay him is almost an act of murder. Get a sense for this. That means they've already committed a crime against Paul. They've bound him. They're in the process of committing an abomination against him. They're about to flog him. And so the centurion, who had been commanded to flog Paul, knowing just how serious this offense was, rushes back to the tribunal to ask him, what are you about to do? And so the tribunal quickly goes to Paul to learn if what he's heard is true, asking him, are you really a Roman citizen? And when Paul confirms that's in fact true, the tribunal replies, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Given the context, it seems he's suggesting something like, if someone like you can be a Roman citizen, then anyone can be a Roman citizen these days. And according to one New Testament scholar, it seems the tribunal may have been hoping that if Paul turned out to be his social inferior, despite them all being Roman citizens, certain Roman citizens were better and Certain ones were more inferior. That if Paul turned out to be his social inferior, that he might be punished only lightly or even be forgiven for his crime if Paul should seek legal redress. But Paul retorts, he's a citizen by birth. He's not his social inferior, but he's his social superior. This tribunal had bought this citizenship for a large sum, but Paul somehow, some way, had been born a citizen. 
And so out of great fear, they withdraw from flogging Paul and they begin to treat Paul with a newfound respect. Now, before we consider the, I think, main thrust of this particular section, I I want us to notice uh, a side note of the value of the government as God has designed it. Uh, These days we live in what everyone recognizes is an anti-institutional age. We are suspicious of institutions, whether that's the church, charities, nonprofits, but especially the government, and sometimes for good reason. Institutions have failed to live up to their aspirations. Politicians have failed to keep the promises they've made. And as the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But if you've been reading with us in community Bible reading, you would have come across this week in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, which was far more tyrannical than the government we live under today, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And Paul would write something similar in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In God's design, the government has been established to honor good conduct, to punish evil, and to protect those who have become victims of evil. And this is actually what's played out for Paul. He's a victim of the crowd. And we'll see that the Sanhedrin and all sorts of people are trying to victimize him, to do evil against him. And by invoking his rights as a citizen of Rome... He's being afforded protection. He's being given legal protection now, even among the Roman soldiers, to get due process. And so as one commentator points out, Christians have nothing to fear from systems that seek justice. Because if a Christian has integrity, then the state has nothing to fear from the believer. And the believer can always say, you have no reason to fear. There's nothing I've done against you to undercut your right to exist and to create a society of law, order, and peace. This is one aspect, then, of why God created government. The government is not called to sponsor or promote Christianity outright, but as Paul would write, they are to create the society, just laws, in such a way that we could lead peaceful, quiet, and godly lives so that we could do the evangelism. And so the government's not called to promote Christianity, but to provide the platform for it. So that we, as we evangelize, speak the gospel, can lead quiet and godly lives, free from interference, and point others to the gospel. So when operating as God's design, the government's proper exercise of authority protects the vulnerable, strengthens community, and promotes human flourishing. So although it's good and right to lament when our government or any government does not do those things, We must not swing to the other side of the pendulum, which I think in our current cultural context we're in danger of doing, of coming to the thought that all institutions, all authority is bad, instead of recognizing, no, bad authority is bad. Good authority has been given by God. But what's particularly important and interesting for us to note here in this passage, in this context, is that while Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen here, That's not always what he does. If you are with us as we are walking through Acts chapter 16, you may remember that he and Silas, both Roman citizens, allowed themselves to be imprisoned and even beaten instead of claiming their Roman citizenship. So it's important for us to consider. Paul doesn't always exercise his rights. He does so here, and he does so in Philippi after they've beaten him, but he doesn't do so all the time. What we learn from this, as one pastor writes, is that Paul does not automatically demand his rights. Self-interest and comfort are not Paul's highest priority. Rather, it was the honor and promotion of the gospel. And so Paul uses wisdom, exercising his rights, and he only does so at the right time, the time in which exercising his rights would not compromise his ability to minister the gospel to others. He approaches his rights with wisdom, He exercises them only when they won't jeopardize either Christian fellowship 
or they won't jeopardize Christian mission. So I'd ask us this this morning. Are we willing to give up our rights for the higher priority of Christian fellowship, as Paul did back in Acts 21 for Jewish Christians? Are we willing to give up our rights for the higher priority of Christian mission, as Paul obviously does again and again throughout his journey and now in Jerusalem? Now, of course, this does not mean that we must always lay down our rights, that we must never take them up. No, Paul is doing that right here. But as Pastor Tim Keller puts it, the point is, when we exercise our rights, it is for the honor of Christ or for the concern of neighbor. It's never naked self-assertion. And so in general, it's not loving to let someone else sin against you. It's not loving to make it easy for someone to continue to sin against you. And so an unwillingness to speak up against sin is probably cowardice or indifference. If you love a person who's caught in sin and want to honor Christ, whose law is being trampled, we'll regularly speak out when we're being violent, but never, never out of revenge or a sense of ill will or merely a desire to protect ourselves. Now, ironically, many people hold a grudge and don't speak out when they're wronged. But the Bible actually demands the exact opposite on many occasions. We're to speak out, yet without ill will. But as we see in other passages, there will be times in which we are not to assert our rights. When we know both God's cause is better promoted or loving unity is better promoted when we simply keep our mouths shut. And so we have to decide. We need wisdom. Do I take up my rights and defend myself? Or do I lay down my rights for the sake of of the gospel. In some situations, it'll call for a taking up. In other situations, it'll call for a laying down. We need the wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom exercises her rights at the right time. Not every time, but the right time. Second, look with me at chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? But then those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Here we see wisdom repents wherever she is able. Wisdom repents wherever she is able. So still determined to understand why Paul is on trial, the tribunal gathered the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling Jewish council, to meet and to explain their charges against Paul. But when Paul steps before them, he gets the first word. And he once again begins respectfully, as we saw last week, and even intimately addressing these leaders as brothers. And then he asserts his innocence as one who has lived his whole life with a clear conscience before God. Yet this claim provokes Ananias, who's the current high priest. As one commentator points out, if Paul's life as a Christian left him in complete innocence before God, then the Sanhedrin members who did not share his commitment to Christ were the guilty parties. And so it's small wonder then that the high priest Ananias would immediately order him to be struck on the mouth for blasphemy. And his actions were completely in character. The Jewish historian Josephus depicts Ananias as one of the very worst of the high priests of that time. He is known for his pro-Roman sentiments, his extreme cruelty, and his greed. And so as he struck, Paul sees in this Ananias' hypocrisy on full display. Paul has not been condemned. Charges haven't been clarified. Discussion hasn't even taken place. And yet, by striking him, Ananias has not only pronounced judgment against him, but has punished him. And this is contrary to Jewish law, which commands in Leviticus 19, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. 
So in response to this injustice, Paul pronounces a curse upon Ananias. He will be judged and struck down by God for his hypocrisy, which is like the whitewashed wall of tombs in the ancient world. Although these whitewashed walls appeared beautiful, clean, stunning, they contain within themselves decomposing and decaying bodies that would defile any Jew who would touch them. And so Ananias may appear clean, he may appear righteous, he may appear dependable, but the reality is he is unclean, wicked, and unstable. But as soon as Paul pronounces this curse, those who are standing by ask him, would you revile God's high priest? Holding him accountable to the very law that's just been broken. But as soon as they point that out, Paul is so quick to realize that he's spoken freely and harshly against the high priest. And Paul apologizes, displaying his readiness to submit to the law that he's being accused of ignoring. And so he states that he did not know that he was the high priest. Which means, as F.F. Bruce points out, that had he known, he would not have called him a whitewashed wall. Since the law of Moses forbade speaking evil against the ruler of the people. Now, many commentators will ask, how is it possible that Paul didn't know that this was the high priest? And so they would insist that Paul is actually being disingenuous here and is actually not responding with an apology, but is actually making another sarcastic, biting remark. Something like, I didn't realize someone as wicked and stupid as you could actually be the high priest. However, I think there are many plausible explanations for how Paul legitimately didn't know this was the high priest including the one I think is most likely. Remember, Paul has been away from Jerusalem for seven years. He's been doing ministry among the Gentiles. It's entirely possible that he had never learned the last high priest had been replaced. And it's entirely possible, even if he did, he didn't recognize him. And that due to the way this court had been called together, that Ananias hadn't set himself apart as the high priest. So it's entirely legitimate. But regardless... Paul's initial reaction to the high priest does not reflect even his own instructions to the church in Corinth. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Regardless of what's going on, we can hardly say that Paul was practicing this when he responded to the high priest. It seems Paul himself lost his temper lashes out in a moment of frustration. He knows he'd been severely mistreated, and he let the audience know it in a way that wasn't becoming of the gospel. But as soon as he was corrected, he comes back to his senses, and he apologizes, not based upon Ananias' character, but on what the scriptures had called Paul to do. He knew he shouldn't have done that. How refreshing this is a picture of the Apostle Paul and of us. For all Paul's maturity, for all the maturity in this congregation, we should never expect sinless perfectionism in this life. We should never expect that we won't still find sin in our hearts. Until Jesus comes back and sets all things right, we will see sin. Until that day, we should expect, due to indwelling sin and the brokenness of this world, that we will see sin spill out of our own hearts. It happened for Paul. It happens for us. We should expect it to happen for us. Yet as Paul was quick to repent of his temper, so too we ought to be quick to confess and repent our own sins. This not only refreshes us, setting expectation, we're, we're going to fail, we're going to sin, but it also challenges us. In Paul's situation, he really had been unjustly treated. He had been wronged. And if I could be so bold as to say, I think Ananias' sin, his offense, is the greater offense. Paul's not done anything that's been clearly demonstrated as wrong. And yet he is being unjustly judged and punished. And yet, here Paul takes responsibility for his comparatively minor sin by confessing and repenting of it. And notice, he doesn't wait for Ananias to repent, because he never will. No doubt, as we share the gospel or simply walk through life, we will find situations in which someone will hurt us, offend us, or maybe even outright attack us. 
And we respond in less than godly ways. Let me put it a different way. We respond in sinful ways. We may relatively respond in minor sinful ways. Their offense may be the greater offense. But we don't wait for them to own their own sin. We don't wait for them to apologize. We don't wait for them to repent before we own our own sin and apologize. No, instead, we take responsibility for what we're able. We apologize ourselves. We seek forgiveness, even from the one who's wronged us. And we repent of what we've done wrong, even if they never do. And listen, this is hard. And so many of us, when we've been wrong, especially in the most offensive of ways, we want to wait. Why should I be the one to go first? They're the one who started it. And they're the one who did it even worse than I did. All I said was this little harsh word at this one moment. But everything they did was absolutely horrible. But that's not the pattern we find in Scripture. It's not the pattern we find in Christ, who pursued us. We pursue those who have wronged us. And when we've done wrong, we're quick to repent wherever we're able. Our repentance is never dependent on someone else's repentance first. Instead, even if our sin is relatively small, even if our misstep is relatively insignificant, when we've done wrong, We don't wait for the offending party to apologize. We apologize ourselves. We seek to restore the relationship. We seek to repent and do everything we can, as Paul would say, to be at peace at all, insofar as it depends on us. That's what reflects wisdom. And that's what reflects the humility demonstrated when we know we've been forgiven in Christ. We have the freedom to apologize even when we've been wrong. And so wisdom repents wherever she's able. The third, look with me at verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contented sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from the barracks by force and bring him into the barracks. Here we see wisdom focuses on the hope of the resurrection. Wisdom focuses on the hope of the resurrection. So having apologized for his wrongdoing and recognizing that this whole trial wasn't getting off to a very good start, Paul shifts tactics. Paul recognizes that the council split between Pharisees on the one hand and Sadducees on the other. And so he claims to be a Pharisee, effectively siding with one part of the council. And then he tells them that one of the reasons, or the reason he's on trial, is due to the hope of the resurrection. One of the things that already split the council right down the middle. As Luke explains, although the Sadducees believe there is a God, they don't believe in the resurrection, angels, nor spirits. Or at the very least, they don't believe these sorts of things interact with the material world still today. Whereas the Pharisees acknowledge the possibility of all this. So after identifying with half the council and framing this trial about something they already disagree over, unsurprisingly, the Pharisees come to Paul's defense, saying it's at least possible he received a revelation. So we don't see him doing anything wrong. And once again, the council, as the crowds before them, devolve into violence. And so the tribunal is unsuccessful in figuring out what is all this accusation and hatred towards Paul about but instead has to take him away to the barracks in order to make sure, once again, he's not killed. Now, if you're not a Christian, before we move on to the bigger picture of this passage, I want you to notice something. Despite the clear historic evidence that Jesus' tomb was empty and that there were hundreds of people who claimed they saw Jesus risen from the dead, which seems to suggest Jesus really did rise from the dead, 
Many will respond to that evidence saying, Surely the followers of Jesus desperately wanted to believe Jesus had been raised from the dead. If anyone had stolen the body in order to make it look like he had been raised, many sincere people could have believed this and would have at least gone along with it for a good cause. But the assumption behind that way of framing the ancient world is a very common form of what C.S. Lewis has called chronological snobbery. We imagine that we modern people are much more skeptical of, or skeptical of claims of bodily resurrection, while the ancients, ready to believe in stuff like this, would have immediately accepted it. But that's not the case, and we see so in our text. The Sadducees were not prone to believe in miracles like the resurrection. In fact, they believed they weren't possible. Further, even though the Pharisees did believe in all of it, they weren't quite ready to believe Jesus had actually been risen from the dead. They were skeptical of that claim. Further, the Apostle Paul himself, who was a Pharisee, open to the possibility of miracles, actually was one of the first to persecute the Christians with great hostility, even to the point of death. And so the reality you can't escape is that both modern people and ancient people are skeptical of the possibility of resurrection. And if they weren't skeptical of the possibility, at the very least, they were skeptical of the claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. Which means for you, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, one of the issues you have to wrestle with is why historically so many people who would be skeptical of the resurrection and skeptical of Jesus' resurrection would not only come to be willing to believe and profess Jesus had risen from the dead, but were also willing to die for it. So regardless of whatever other objections you may have to Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus is at the very heart to the Christian faith. It's what all of our faith rises and falls upon. And so if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then there's no reason for you to bother with anything else you might find in the Bible. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then the invitation to you is to submit to everything that he said. Everything that we would find in his word. And so I want to extend two kinds of invitations this morning. So if you're someone who might call themselves a Christian because you acknowledge, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but you have never submitted your life personally to Jesus as Savior and Lord. You have never personally confessed, I'm a sinner in need of grace, turn from that sin and rest on Jesus's work, then I need you to understand this morning, you don't have the same definition of a Christian that the Bible does. The Bible says even the demons believe and they shudder. So a Christian believes in the hope of a resurrection and as a result, submits their whole life to Jesus. And so if you accept the resurrection really happened, but you've not done that, you've not turned from your sin, trusted Jesus and submitted your whole life to him, then I'd invite you to do that today. Turn from your sin, trust Jesus. And if you need to talk with someone about what that means, what that looks like, you're wondering now, am I a Christian or am I not? Please come talk with me after the service. We would love to walk with you through that. But second, if you're the kind of person who has all sorts of objections to Christianity, then to you I would plead for a moment, set those objections on the shelf and investigate the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. Because the issue on which everything hangs is whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And so do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Then you can work out the rest of all your other objections to Christianity. But if you don't believe he rose from the dead, then why bother with any of the other objections you have to Christianity? Just ignore them. They don't matter. And that actually brings us then to the heart of this section. So some will protest here that Paul is being manipulative and deceptive when he claims to both be a Pharisee and that the reason he's on trial is due to the hope of the resurrection. They suggest, after all, that Paul's no longer a Pharisee since he's become a Christian and that he's not really on trial because of the hope in the resurrection, but because he had desecrated the temple. At least that's the accusation. And some would even appeal to the passage we'll look at next week, to suggest that Paul himself recognized that he did wrong by crying out regarding the resurrection. This is what Paul says in Acts chapter 24. Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. 
other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. And so based on that way of wording, they want to say, Paul is saying, hey, the one thing they could say I did wrong is that I cried out that I'm on trial for something I'm not really on trial for. But I don't think that's actually the best interpretation of what's happening in this passage. First, in claiming to be a Pharisee, it seems Paul is claiming something like he's being the most consistent kind of Pharisee because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Pharisees had hope in the, the, the Messiah of Israel. And Paul's saying, I recognize this man who rose from the dead is the hope of Israel. Second, if Paul were admitting to wrongdoing in Acts 24, then crying out about the resurrection is hardly the only thing he's done wrong. He's already admitted, I spoke harshly against the ruler. I've done something wrong there that could deserve punishment. Third, Paul's statement in Acts 24 can easily be understood as Paul simply saying, hey, the one thing that they're accusing me of doing wrong is that I believe in the hope of the resurrection. That's why I'm on trial, is because they're saying, I've done this thing wrong. I believe the wrong thing. And fourth and finally, although the specific circumstances that led to Paul's arrest and trial is the defilement of the temple, the ultimate reason that stands behind that reason, the only reason they're accusing him in the first place, is because of the hope of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. As Paul himself said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So instead, I think a better way to understand Paul's action here is to see that he's using wisdom to engage this particular trial by the Sanhedrin. And so wisely knowing the political and theological landscape that these Sadducees and Pharisees are divided, Paul uses that division in order to vindicate himself, to show I've done nothing wrong. You're squabbling over something that is entirely consistent with Jewish convictions and principles. I'm situating this in the context of a debate among faithful Jews over whether the resurrection really happened. But second, and more importantly, Paul is wisely making the hope of the resurrection the focus of his ministry, the focus of his argument, the focus of this trial, because ultimately it's the hope of the resurrection that had brought him to this place in the first place. And it's the hope of the resurrection that would give them life, that would give them hope. And so we learn something from Paul in this. There are a variety of reasons that people would object to Christianity these days. As we seek to explain the gospel to our friends and family, they may reject it because of biblical morality. They may object because of the exclusivity of Christ. It may be the hypocrisy of Christians. It may be the historical injustices of the church. It may be the problem of evil. And we could go down a long list of reasons why people might object to Christianity. And yet, again, the issue on which all other issues rise and falls is the hope of the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead. And so if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we have to accept everything he said, even on the questions of morality that might offend us these days. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he really is the only way to salvation because only he died in our place and only he rise to give us life. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he really died for sinners which includes hypocrites. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then Jesus really is doing as he says in Ephesians, sanctifying the church to present her blameless when he comes back. Which means, of course, the church does stupid things. Of course, the church perpetrates injustice because Jesus is in the process of making her pure and blameless. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, then whatever we want to say about the problem of evil, the one thing we must say is that Jesus is with us in the midst of our evil. He is with us in the midst of our suffering. He does not leave us to it alone, but entered into our existence to identify with us. And this means for our work as evangelists and apologists, the way of wisdom is to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, which is the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so surely we need to be prepared for questions and discussions about biblical morality, the exclusivity of Christ, hypocrisy of Christians, historical injustice in the church, and the problem of evil, and on and on we could go. But we must never lose sight of the fact that what people need to grapple with most is the hope of the resurrection. So we must labor to bring that back into our focus again and again and again. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And so when our non-Christian friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family have question after question about the many weird things we believe as Christians, we need to help them see answers to those things. But all the while remembering that flows from our first conviction. The Son of God became a man died on the cross, but didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. So the question that our non-Christian friends need to answer is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because again, if he did, it changes everything. The resurrection changes suffering because even the worst things that happen to us are not the end of the story. The resurrection changes death, guilt, and shame because Jesus rose from the dead. Now we have life, forgiveness, and healing. The resurrection changes darkness and despair because in the end we'll be raised with him to eternal light and hope. The resurrection changes even our doubts and questions because the resurrection means all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And so teens, on this note in particular, let me just invite you to look up here if you're a teenager and you have questions or doubts about the Christian faith. Let me encourage you to wrestle with, did Jesus really rise from the dead? You may have a lot of other things you need to work through, but you need to remember our faith is based on that one question. Did he rise from the dead? And so you need to go deep on that question, even as you seek to answer all the other things you might be feeling uh, as an objection to your faith as you interact with people who are hostile to the faith. Wisdom focuses on the hope of the resurrection. And the rest will sort itself out in time. Finally, look with me at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. Here we see wisdom takes heart in God's promises. Wisdom takes heart in God's promises. Finally, after Paul has been safely taken back to the barracks, the Lord appears to him and gives him hope with a promise. He promises that Paul will not only testify here, but he'll make it all the way to Rome to testify there as well. So whatever would happen to him in the next several chapters that we'll see, whatever suffering he may face, whatever disaster he may face, he can take courage because he knows where his story is headed. He will testify in Rome. And so he can have courage no matter what he faces because of God's promise. And this same encouragement that Jesus offers Paul is found all over the New Testament. The phrase translated here as take courage is found again and again as take heart. Pastor Kent Hughes would write it this way. Only Christ uses the word in the New Testament and all those instances bring wonderful comfort. He calls to the bedridden paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with 12 years of bleeding, he says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. To his frightened disciples, as he came to them across the storm-tossed sea of Galilee, he says, Take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And in the upper room, on the night of his crucifixion, he says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. This is Christ's unique word, for all who are trying to serve him, however feebly and weakly. And so although we don't have the same promise as Paul that we'll get to testify one day in Rome, we do have many very great and precious promises. Here are just two of them. Jesus' final words to his disciples as he charges them, go and make disciples, and as words to them become words to us, what does he promise them? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what suffering we face, no matter what disasters into our life, 
no matter who stands with us or against us, one promise that we can always take to the bank is that Jesus is with us. Always, to the end of the age. There's no doubting that. He is with us and for us. And so when we suffer, he sees us and identifies with us. When we're attacked and isolated, he loves us and cares for us. No one can separate us from him, not even ourselves. And second, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he assures them with these words in John 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And what effect should all this have? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Listen, if you are in Christ, he has given you the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to teach you what Jesus has said and to help you remember all that he said. Which means there is no evangelistic encounter that you will be unprepared for. Because the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need and will help you to remember what you need. Even if that starts with, gee, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. Let me go figure it out and come back to you. We need not let our hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Instead, we can take heart and take courage because the very Spirit that Jesus promised to send to strengthen us and empower us is the very Spirit who dwells in you if you trust in Christ. And how do we know all of these promises are true? Well, Paul would write in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, the reason we know that all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ is because God gave us Christ. His most precious and beloved Son, His only begotten Son, He sent to enter our world, to identify with us, to know our weakness, our temptation and sorrow, to live a perfect life that none of us ever lived. Therefore, earning the righteousness we owe to God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place, paying the penalty we owe for our sin. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose in victory. So that now we know for sure, because God has already given us Jesus, everything else he's already promised will be yes. He will graciously give us all that we need. If God was willing to give up Jesus on the cross, then he will give us everything he has promised. And so wisdom, rather than looking at all that could go wrong, all that could weigh down our hearts, all that could discourage us, instead takes heart, is encouraged by all of God's promises. So Northwood, as we go about our ministry, as we go about making much of Jesus, let's walk in wisdom towards outsiders, exercising our rights at the right time, repenting wherever we're able, focusing on the hope of the resurrection, and by taking heart in God's promises. So now as we conclude our time together in God's word, let me invite you to reflect what God has been saying to you through his word. Perhaps these questions on the screen might be a help. What is your motivation when you assert your rights? Is it for honor of Christ, for love of neighbor? Is it mere selfishness? How are you tempted to justify minor sins rather than repent of them when you've been wronged? How can you focus more on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your evangelism? Or if you're a non-Christian, as you consider becoming a Christian? And finally, what promises does your heart need to cling to as you engage in evangelism? Remember, if God did not spare his own son, he will graciously give you everything you need. Let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word.
James commands us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so if the spirit of God through the word of God has prompted you to respond in a particular way, I'd plead with you, don't leave here without telling someone what that thing is and so that we might walk together towards Jesus. Please, if you'd join me in prayer before we return to worship through song. Heavenly Father, we desperately need wisdom. And one of your promises is that if any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask and you'll give it. And so, Lord, as we think about the variety of situations that we each face that are difficult, confusing, complicated, that require nuance and great care, we plead that you would give us gospel wisdom. Help us to know when we need to pick up our rights or when we need to lay them down. Help us to know where we've erred and need to apologize. Help us to focus in all the things that might distract us and discourage us and the hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus. But most importantly, Lord, we beg and plead you would help us to remember Jesus his life, death, and resurrection and how that guarantees all of your promises to us will be yes in Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to walk in wisdom in light of the one who is wisdom. We ask this in his name. Amen.